understanding of the good news of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And so we find ourselves in the book of Acts in chapter 21. We are in Acts 21, 15 to 26. It'll be up on the screen for you, or you can turn in your Bibles to that as well. As uh, just a quick reminder where we are in Acts, that we are seeing the church being born and on the move. The church is expanding greatly. God has sent out Paul and others as the first true missionaries to go and to share the gospel and the other disciples and apostles to all parts of the known world. And we have come to our our point in that story, that history of the early church, where we see Paul finally getting to the destination where he wanted to go. He wanted so desperately to get to Jerusalem. In the last few chapters, we've seen that. He's been to many places, done many things. He's encountered different trials and tribulations, almost left for dead, if we remember that. But here he is finally by way of different cities and towns and sharing the gospel all along the way, he finally gets back to Jerusalem. Jerusalem where it all started. And so in this scene, as I'm just kind of setting this up in Acts 21, uh, in, uh, in those verses 15 to 26, Paul and his sort of entourage, they finally get to Jerusalem and meet with James, who is the leader of the church in Jerusalem and all the elders, and he gets to share with them all of the awesome things that God has been doing through Paul and others to the Gentile people. And then the leaders there, they're, they're just awestruck. They can't believe it. They praise God for it. But then they kind of give him a warning. Well, now you're in Jerusalem and we have a little bit of an issue. And um, I'm sure Paul was just like, okay, what now? Right? He's had issues all along the way. And so they address that, and Paul does something very curious, and that's really where we're going to kind of park ourselves in actually seeing what Paul does in response to their request of him. All right, so let's read that. Again, it'll be up on the screen, so you can just um, read along as I read it out loud. And it says this in Acts 21, this is 15 to 26. After these days, we got ready, we went up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea, they went with us, bringing us to the house of Manasin of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. When he had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. When they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed, and they're zealous for the law. They have been told about you that that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, and telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? Because they will certainly hear that you have come So do do therefore what we tell you now. We have four men who are under a vow. So take these men, purify yourself along with them, and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed We have sent a letter with our judgment 
that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, and from blood and from what has been strangled, and also from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men, those four men, and the next day he purified himself along with them. And he went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. Curious what happens here. Do you see? Hope you were able to follow that. But what happens is very simply, James and the elders said, Paul, you're doing amazing things out there in the world with the Gentiles, but you're back in Jerusalem now, and here's the problem. We also have a lot of Jews who have come to believe in Jesus, and that's great. But they also are still zealous for the law. See, they want to keep the customs. They want to go through the traditions. And they've kind of heard a rumor, Paul, about you. They've heard that you are going around telling all of the Jewish Christians, forget about that, forsake Moses. You don't have to do any. You shouldn't be doing any of that. So their solution was this. Look, we got these guys who were taking a vow. It was a Nazarite vow, evidently. It doesn't really say. We can surmise it was a vow of a Nazarene, which was really these men had been blessed somehow. And so according to the Old Testament laws, right, they were then saying, let's, ha- let's take a vow for a certain amount of time. All right? They would grow their hair, then they would shave their heads, and at the end they would have to sacrifice certain animals and they have to go and buy them. And so the leaders say, you know what? Why don't you join these four men and actually take the vow, kind of join them at the end, he was, and you can even pay for their sacrifices for their animals and go to the market and buy it for them, and that will be a show of good faith. That these rumors are not true and that you think it's okay to go ahead and and um, and observe these customs. And it doesn't say anything about Paul's response in words other than it says, so Paul went along with these four men. And he did it. And so we're left to kind of think, well, why did he do this? Now there are some scholars and teachers who would say and come to the conclusion that Paul made a mistake. That Paul sinned. And he erred by by acquiescing and giving in to the leaders and, and saying it's okay to go ahead and do these things and that, and that he then bore false witness to the gospel and that we should learn from his mistake. Now, I for one do not buy into that. I don't read it that way. And I'm going to explain why. Because as we look at other passages of Scripture, as we have to look at the Scripture in total, right, to see all that Jesus taught, but all everything that Paul taught, His actions to go along with observing this vow fall right in line and are consistent with everything else I think that he taught. Look at what it says in 1 Corinthians 9. This is, I believe, 19 to 23. Look at what it says. He says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became a Jew. In order to win Jews, to those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law. He makes that distinction. Those parentheses there in your Bible, that phrase is super important. That I might win those that are under the law. But then he says, to those that are outside the law, I became outside the law. Not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. Again, what's in parentheses, so important. That I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, 
that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. And that's really the key, that last couple of verses. He says, I become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. And he did it all for the sake of the gospel. I truly believe that that is the best way to interpret what's going on here in Acts. That Paul is not in any way bearing false witness. He is not compromising what he believes in the gospel of grace. It is not like when we talked about those Judaizers who say that you need to be, you can only be saved by faith in Christ and circumcision. He's saying no. By participating in this Nazarite vow, he is doing just what he says in 1 Corinthians 9. To the Jew, he became a Jew. To those not under the law, he became not under the law. But again, remember what the parentheses said in both instances. In no way is he compromising the gospel of grace. Right? That's what I believe he's doing. And so we just kind of, it's just kind of left there. It says that he takes the vow. He goes into the temple, kind of lets it be known, and we leave it there. There's a lot of details involved with that vow. And like I said, at the end of that Nazarene vow, when he kind of joined them towards the end of their, their doing this, they have to buy animals to sacrifice. It was an act of worship, see, in a sense. They were following the law because they had been blessed somehow. We're not told how. And Paul decides to go along with the plan of the elders. I think he does it for two main reasons. One, he does it to keep unity in the church. The leader said, look, these, these Jewish Christians, we praise God for them, new brothers and sisters in the Lord, but they're following still their traditions and customs, and I think we need to, a show of good faith. And Paul goes along with it. Because I believe in my heart that in Paul's heart, he wasn't doing anything to compromise the gospel. He was not preaching a new which would have been a false gospel, he was going along with the customs. You know that old saying, when in Rome, right? In a sense, like when in Jerusalem, do as they do. I really believe that's the key to what he was doing. So for us this morning, as we look at some other scriptures and examples of how Jesus modeled this, and another instance where Paul modeled this, then for us really is what's the application? What does that look like for us? This can be a very sensitive issue because really at the heart of it is what we would like to term our Christian liberty, which simply means now in Christ we have been set free, right? Set free from the bondage of the law and from being slaves to sin. But how do we live that out as Christians in the world in which we live? How do we live that out in the year 2017? with the economy the way it is and politics the way it is and everything that's going on around us, and as the world continues to change ever more rapidly, then what is it that we model as Christians? How do we engage with the culture but remain morally discerning? That's so important. So we're just going to look at a few different passages of Scripture and see how Jesus modeled this for us 
and then get some ideas about what this might look like for us and some issues that the church has dealt with over the years, perhaps even things that you might be dealing with in your life as well. You know, we just recognized our our veterans. It's important that we do that, of course, like I said, not just one day a year, but all the time. And what do we thank them for? For their service in bringing us what? Freedoms, right? We have so many freedoms in this country and we often forget about it because we're so used to it and praise God for what we've been blessed with. But have you ever lived in another country or even visited where they don't have those kind of freedoms? It can be just a, a, such a stark contrast and a great reminder of those freedoms that we enjoy in this country. But those freedoms, we know, come with great responsibility. And I think that's often where we as a country fall short. But we know as believers, we are no longer slaves. We sing that song, right? We are set free in Jesus Christ. But what does Paul model? That we are set free to now be slaves to Christ. See that? We are no longer slaves under the law or to sin. We are free people indeed in Jesus Christ. But Paul then takes that and he says, I am now free to voluntarily be a slave to Christ. And he says in that passage in 1 Corinthians 9, for the sake of the gospel, I'm going to become all things to all people. There could be a balancing act there. What does that look like for us? Did you ever notice, I don't know if I'm just hypersensitive to this or not, you know, being a, a man and a father, but did you ever, and a pastor, did you ever notice how so often in movies and TV especially, how Christians are depicted? How are they depicted? Usually as, as what? There you go. Losers. I like it. That sums it up. They're legalistic. They're out of touch, right? As we might say, they're just losers. They're just out, they're just out of touch with what's going on in the world around them. Legalistic, dogmatic, judgmental, right? Did you ever notice that, how it comes across? I mean, back um, in, uh, when my oldest daughter was in high school, she was in that, that musical Footloose, and they made a movie about it. Remember that? The Kevin Bacon movie and all that, you know. And what was the premise of that story? That here's a guy from the city who goes to this sort of backwater town and they're not allowed to dance because there's a pastor in town. He's kind of wielding his authority and everybody follows and listens to him and he says dancing is what? Basically, it's a sin. It's of the devil and it leads to all kinds of debauchery. So here comes this young kid and he's going to change that town, right? And there's this great scene where he's before the the school board or the town board and the pastor who, of course, sits on that board and he reads from Scripture about how David danced in his worship, right? And what are they going to say to that? And at the end, they allow him to dance because the pastor sees the error of his ways and all that. And it was really really kind of cool and interesting because my daughter played that lead of that girl who in the show, her dad was the pastor. And everybody thought it was so cool. Hey, your dad's really a pastor, you know. But there was a friend that said, yeah, but I'm glad he's not like the pastor that's in the, in the movie, in the play, you know. But I mean, we, we represent Christ, and we say it a lot. We're his ambassadors. We represent him to the world, but what kind of job are we doing with that? If all that we see, when we see pastors and Christians depicted in our modern culture as being judgmental and out of touch, Right? and hypocritical, and so legalistic. 
And what does that mean? There was a book written 10 years ago called Unchristian. Have you ever heard of George Barna? Right? He, he's got the Barna Group, and they do. He's like well known in the, in the Christian world for, uh, for doing surveys of the church and, and seeing what trends are out there in, among churches in the country. And so he came out with this book called Unchristian. It was based upon a series of interviews and surveys they did with a few thousand young people. We might call them today millennials. This was 10 years ago, 2007. And here's what they found. So very interesting. And here's why we should take note of their results. Because it truly reflects how we as Christians are exercising our Christian liberty. Or not. Swinging one way or the other. And so the results of these surveys come out in this book called Unchristian. And here's what they find. They're really intrigued, these young people, about Jesus. They love His teaching as a moral teacher. And even when they interviewed people and asked them about Jesus, these young people, their eyes lit up. They wanted to engage about His teachings on social justice and forgiveness, right? And all of that. But then when they were asked questions about the church and about Christians, you could see it in their faces. Their demeanor changed and and they started to have such a negative outlook and their responses reflected that. And there were some things that that were really noted in that, and each of the chapters signifies it. And here's four that really stuck out. From all those surveys, here is how, ten years ago, and have we been any better? I don't know in the last ten years. This is how the young people, the young adults that were surveyed, this is how they see Christians. They're hypocritical. They're sheltered. They're too political. And they're judgmental, among others. And it doesn't get any better, the other ones I didn't mention. Now, does this always reflect the truth? Of course not. But for better or worse, it's the impression that we seem to be giving to the world out there. So people are excited to hear about Jesus, but not those who represent Him. And there's something wrong. There's a disconnect And so why is that important and why do I bring it up? Because what Paul is doing here by taking the vow is he is participating in a tradition or a custom, but in no way is he compromising the gospel. Look at some other examples of this. Jesus meets the Samaritan woman at the well, John 4, 7 and 9. It says, A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. So the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. We're all familiar with that story. But think about that. Not only was Jesus meeting her right where she was, he didn't, as it was pointed out to me the other day, go around Samaria to avoid them as all the other Jews did. It said in an earlier verse that he had to go through Samaria. So he went through there purposely going out, listen, going out of the comfort zone of a normal Jew. Do you see that? And he goes through this area of Samaria where no Jew would really go. Have you ever been intentional about taking the gospel to someone or to a culture outside of your comfort zone? Maybe it was to another country. 
Maybe it's to the homeless on the streets of New York City. There are different things that make us uncomfortable. But here is Jesus going through Samaria. He meets the woman at the well, simply asks for a drink. He engages in a very simple, non-threatening conversation. And right away she notices something is different. Not only is he a Jew talking to her, a Samaritan. He's a man talking to a woman. But he meets her right where she is. Did not judge or condemn her in that sense. But here's the key. He also did not dismiss or condone her sin. Right? So he did not. He did not taint the gospel or bear false witness. He didn't compromise the truth of the gospel and the fact of sin. But yet he did not coming in. He did not come in being a hypocrite or judgmental or being too separated. You see that? What else? Jesus meeting and eating and hanging out with the tax collectors and prostitutes is something we like to say a lot. Well, Jesus hung out with them. Do you know the true ramifications of that for Jesus and for his followers? Even his disciples. You remember when when the little children were coming to Jesus and the disciples tried to push them away, like, he doesn't have time for these little kids. And what did Jesus do? He reprimanded them and said, let them come to me. Right? It says in Mark two fifteen to 17, as he reclined at a table in his house, many tax collectors, that was Jesus' house, it was the person he was with, Levi, I believe, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, For there were many who followed him. So many of those who followed him were tax collectors and sinners. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, right? Scandalous. He said to his disciples, why does he do this? Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick... I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. Again, Jesus goes and meets the people right where they are. Not out of his comfort zone, of course, but it certainly would have been out of the comfort zone for his disciples and his followers. He met them right where they were. He did not judge or condemn them. He took a meal with them. He ate with them. It doesn't say this, but doesn't it just stand to reason that he would have laughed with them? He would have shared stories with them. But also, in doing so, in no way does it show that he condones any sin that they might have. So Jesus understands what it means to meet those right where they are. And finally, the other um, passage of Scripture that truly, truly models this is Paul. The Apostle Paul in Athens. We went through it a number of weeks ago, months ago now, in Acts 17. Uh, verses 16 to 23. I want to reread that for you. This is Paul in Athens. Just a classic example of the Apostle Paul taking note of the culture around him. Right, The culture around him and what does he do to engage that culture but at that same time being morally discerning. You see that? He had discernment and conviction and maturity in his faith but then he was able to then to engage the culture 
It says, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, waiting for the other disciples to come and to meet with him, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he went and he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews. Remember, he always did that wherever he went. And the devout persons, but also in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. He did some street evangelism, didn't he? He did. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. With him, and, he, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? And others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. Because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus and they said, May we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? See, he opened the doors and he got an audience with them. People who didn't under, even understand what he was teaching. He didn't come and judge them and shut the doors. He noticed the culture around him and he presented the gospel. And I'm sure in a very, not, in a very unass, unassuming and disarming way. And they brought him aside and they said, hey, let's hear more about this. So it says, you bring some strange teaching to our ears. We wish, we wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there, they would just spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. See, Paul knew that. They loved to talk. They loved to debate. They loved to hear new things, new philosophies and ideas. And Paul said, sweet, I'm going in. And he started, he started sharing the gospel. He didn't come judging. He didn't stay so separated. I can't, I can't associate with those people. Now, was he compromising the gospel? No. He found a way to engage the culture, but yet being morally discerning by not worshiping the idols that they worship. See, he didn't come in and say, okay, you worship these idols, I want to fit in. So I'm going to worship them too. I'll do it in the name of Jesus, but I'm going to worship these false idols. See? He didn't do that, but look at what he does. It says in verse 22, So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, he said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you're religious. See, starting to kind of open a door there, it's a compliment to them. They're like, yeah, yeah, we're religious. You know, so he's already kind of like softening it. And he says, For I passed along, I observed the objects of your worship. That's good. He was respectful to them in a way. Hey, I see you worship all these idols. He said, I also found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. So now he's like engaging them. He's like, what that, what's that all about? He goes, what therefore you worship is unknown. Here's what I have to say about This is what I proclaim to you. And then it goes on. And it says he starts right from creation. He goes all the way from Genesis teaches them all about God as Creator. He goes all the way up in his message to the resurrection. They're like, wow. And that's what he does. But he does it in such an unassuming way. He engages the culture. He actually starts to participate in one of their customs, which is you know, philosophizing about things and, and, and debating different things. And he goes right and he meets them on their terms, in their culture, walks among their their idols he doesn't stand outside the city and say they got idols i can't go in there he didn't judge or condemn them but also he did not worship their idols do you see that there's extremes that we can go to as human beings also of course as humans who are believers in christ as christians we tend to go to extremes don't we and that's why we need to be morally discerning before we can truly be culturally engaging. 
Because really one of two things will happen. We become so ensconced in our culture and the world around us that we don't look or act or say anything different. Then we have nothing new and exciting to offer people. Maybe you've been there in your life and you've experienced that where maybe you're sharing the gospel with somebody over time and building a relationship and you start to just become so much like them and even in their sinfulness that you don't look any different. So then you go to share the gospel and what's your witness really going to be? But then the opposite is so true and we've all seen it. And it's so unfortunate. You swing the pendulum the other way and Christians can become so legalistic and dogmatic that they are completely separated themselves from the world around them where they have no opportunity to share the gospel and the good news of jesus so what do we do how do we do that and what does that look like for us we need to adapt to our culture but not to its ungodly aspects does that make sense we need to adapt to the culture around us i mean things have changed right does The way we worship, the clothes that we wear, the things that we're doing, the songs we're singing, does it look the way it did 20 years ago, 50 years ago, a month ago? No. Does your phone look the same as it did? No. Did you buy the new iPhone? Good, it's already outdated, you know? But I mean, culture changes so quickly. And yes, it is totally fine that we adapt in many ways to our culture. The language of the culture the things that we say and do and experience, but we never do it to the extreme where we lose our witness, right? Where we can certainly adapt to our culture and engage the culture, but if we're morally discerning and mature in our faith, then we're not going to adapt to those parts that are certainly ungodly. Scripture teaches us so much of things that we should be involved with. Loving others, helping the poor, right? Sharing the gospel, bringing the good news, coming together in a church and worshiping God. We know those things, but oftentimes we can get fixated on the things that we shouldn't be doing. And then we tell others the same. One of the great tragedies, I have to say, of missionary work over the past hundred years, although God has done amazing things through the millions of missionaries that have gone out from thousands of churches over hundreds of years to share the gospel, one of the things that we've seen happen that's only now being understood, the ramifications, is people, especially from this country, taking a westernized version of Christianity, which is truly a Middle Eastern religion, if you want to think of it that way, taking a westernized version, wearing a suit and tie and doing things a certain way, and taking it to other countries with other languages and other cultures and saying, this is how Christians look and worship. How many doors have they closed? How many lives have been affected that way? Rather than doing what we know that missionaries mostly do is before they go to a foreign land, let's say, don't they take time? Usually it's years to learn a language, to learn the culture. They don't just show up and say, here I am, a Christian from America, and this is how we do it. They come and they learn the culture. They eat food with them. They find out those things that that you know that can cause problems sometimes it's little silly things we have some good friends who are asian and you know when you come into their house you have to take your shoes off now i particularly don't like to do that but you know what i do it out of respect for them because it's part of their culture and if you don't it can be a sign of disrespect 
It's funny, in some cultures, you get a plate of food and you sit down, and if you eat it all up, it's a sign of disrespect. It shows like they didn't give you enough. Right? I mean, you never know. See, we have to remember, right? Get out of our comfort zone and out of our box that we are not the only church in town, the only Christians in the world. Right? There are Christians around the world today that are worshiping, wearing so many different kinds of clothes with so many different kinds of music in so many different ways, in different places, out in a field, under a tree, in a warehouse, in a church building, stained glass, no stained glass. Right? We have to understand that there's so many different ways where we say the method changes, but the message never changes. And that's the key and the crucial thing. If we swing one side or the other, become too worldly as we say, then we'll be no earthly good. Did you ever hear that? But if we swing the other way and we're too legalistic and too dogmatic and we tell people you can't dance, you can't wear jeans to church, you can't smoke, you can't drink, you can't go here and there, what kind of message is that sending? You may not do that. There's been way too many in churches for way too long who have done that. So therefore, they do surveys and they come out with a book like that and it says, yeah, what do people think today of Christians? Yeah, they love Jesus. They like to hear about Jesus, but they don't like Jesus' followers. They're just too political, too caught up in play. If you're a Christian, then you're this party or that party. Oh, you must think this or that or that, right? You must watch this news channel or that news channel. Or we're too secluded, too cut off, too hypocritical, too judgmental. So Paul participated in that vow. I don't believe he compromised the gospel at all. He didn't reflect a bending of his convictions. He was simply observing the custom and the ritual. But it had nothing to do with the message of the gospel of salvation. See, there's a big difference between forsaking and for the sake of. There's got to be a balance. There's got to be that discernment and that maturity to be able to engage the culture. I'm going to end with a few more words. It's expected that our culture, our heritage, will to some degree influence the way we go about our mission and conduct ourselves in worship, but we have to be careful that we do not intertwine our personal and cultural traditions and expectations so much that we begin to believe that adhering to those traditions and culturally influenced practices are necessary for being a real Christian. Did we not just spend five weeks talking about the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation? And what did Martin Luther rail against? It was traditions of the church at the time that were formulated by men, and they held their traditions shaped by their culture as just as important and the same level of authority as the Holy Scriptures. That is truly what led to the Protestant Reformation. 500 years later, are we any better? The Bible says one day Jesus will return. When He does, we're going to find ourselves caught up with Him, brought into heaven, gathered around the throne of God with who? Everybody that looks like us? Just the people in this church? No. A multitude, a vast multitude of people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. So let's understand that and enjoy the beauty of that here and now on this side of heaven. 
Following Jesus is not about adopting a certain cultural mindset. It's not about adopting a certain national identity, right? Nor is it about shedding your culture or your national identity or about shedding your heritage. It's not either or. It's about being given a whole new identity through faith in Jesus Christ. It's about believing in Jesus, being incorporated into His body and the church with all of its various and diverse parts. Doesn't Paul always say that? That we're part of a body, of a whole. We're all going to look different and act different and bring different baggage and customs and traditions with us. But finally, what is Paul's true motivation and his strategy for Christian liberty? It's love. Galatians 5.13 You were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. Use, we should use our liberty to, to love and serve others. That's what Paul said he's doing. Verse 19, though I'm free from all people, I have made myself a slave to all. See that? In Christ, he's free. He doesn't have to, but he willingly does because of his love for God. Does that make sense? That's the true motivation. So in freedom, for love's sake, we try to overcome unnecessary, alienating differences that cut us off from unbelievers. In freedom for love's sake, we learn the culture and the language of those that we are trying to reach. But all the while, we keep a vigilant vigilant watch over our hearts, over our hearts as we are morally discerning. We can sum it up finally this way. Christ died to set us free, free from the wrath of God, free from the loveless limits of the law, free for love and eternal life. But the question is, are we using our Christian liberty? Are we using our freedom to make this good news plain and simple, unhindered and unadulterated? Are we so separate and legalistic that we have no connection with unbelievers? Or are we so worldly that they don't know we have anything radically different to offer? The ultimate goal of the Christian should be to glorify God, encourage and bless fellow believers, and have a good reputation and connection and relationship with unbelievers. For again, Paul says it this way, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your awesome word today. God, would you convict each of us where we need to be convicting? Convicted that we would not. That we would not swing from one side to the other. That we would not become so separated and legalistic that we condemn others right from the start. That we would recognize that we never also compromise the truth of the gospel that talks all about sin. The sin that separates us from you. The sin that we are born with. That original and ultimate sin. Father God, would you help us never to begin a conversation pointing out somebody else's speck that we would first look at the plank in our own eye. And God, that through Jesus that we would be humbled to be able to share the good news of your Son, the hope that we have in Him, the gospel of grace, with all those around us, that we would have the courage enough to step out of our comfort zone to do what Jesus did and go through intentionally a place like Samaria maybe where we have no business being recognizing that we are your representatives 
Help us to be sensitive to the culture and customs around us. That we would be willing to do all for the sake of the gospel. But God, would you help us to grow in our maturity and our skill of discernment so that we do it without compromising the gospel or our convictions or building any kind of wall or barrier between anyone. But Father God, we don't want to be representatives of what those surveys found. We don't want to be found hypocritical and judgmental or too political or too standoffish and separated. God, help us. Help us to be in the world, but not of it, as we like to say. God, would you give us the strength, the courage, the wisdom, the discernment to do that, that we would recognize we do it all for the sake of the gospel. As we sang earlier, God, we want to rescue the perishing. We want to be your hands and feet. We want to be representatives of the good news. Lord, help us to do that always. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with us as we close?